So welcome, Sean, to the GraphQL Guide interview with Sean Swixwang. Is that did I pronounce that right? It's it's my Chinese and English initials, and it's just a branding that I leaned into because it's unique. Yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, definitely unique. So for those of、uh, our readers who don't yet know you, who are you? What do you do? Cool. I'm Sean. I guess I work on developer experience at Temporal. I should be more assertive. I, I I'm head of developer experience at Temporal.io. It's a small startup that does microservices orchestration, which is a very very fancy name that basically runs an open source framework, a spun out of Uber. That we can go into more details, but really I've done. I sort of migrated from. Finance is, which is my first career. Then I went into front end. So I did a JavaScript bootcamp. Then went into front end. Did started doing some speaking and writing in 2017, and got noticed by Netlify, and that's how I got into developer education, which is what we're here to talk about, I guess. And then started getting into GraphQL because it was so tied into the React world at the time. You could not ignore <laughs> GraphQL and Gatsby and Apollo and all the all the ecosystem in 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 place. I did then. I then went to AWS to do the same job, essentially, where they have Amplify and AppSync. AppSync is AWS's GraphQL Gateway as a Service, which we can talk about. And I recently left to join Temporal. Going back to when you were get, getting noticed, you were like writing blogs and doing talks and getting noticed by Netlify. How did you decide to get into developer education? I didn't. There wasn't actually a decision. <laughs> It was just like let's just try this and see what happens. So the the context was that the book the. The first job I got out of bootcamp was at Two Sigma, which is a well-known quant hedge fund in New York. The problem was that I was in a—I I didn't know it—but I got into a bad part of Two Sigma where they were severely underusing their engineers、uh, to the point where four days out of five we were not doing anything, like specifically not standing on our desks because we had stand-up desks, and explicitly given to have the okay to do whatever we wanted, whatever, because we just didn't have work, and that was. It's a it's an enviable position, right? For for a lot of people, like oh yeah, just paid around to do whatever you want. That's that sounds like a great job, but I don't think it's a very good job for a junior, like、uh, someone just starting out, right? You're not going to grow up very much, so it's like frustration, really, that I was like, okay, I'm I'm not getting any learning at work. My my team lead was like not doing his job, so I just started blogging and making my my own mentors like externally. New York City has a pretty vibrant meetup scene, so I just started doing my own talks, even though I didn't feel like an expert. And then I started doing blogging, and I think that the first one that really picked up for me was when React announced that it was working on async React, like concurrent mode as it is known today, but back then it was async React. So it was announced at a conference in JSConf on March,、uh, in March 2018, and I remember that night because. It was a big shock to the React ecosystem. It was like a, a sweeping change, like touching every single part of React. So I just stayed up all night to write a walkthrough of the the talk, the demo, and and just really like went through everything at it. And that was the first blog post that got really some notice for me, and that really snowballed since then. And since then, I've kind of enveloped everything into this principle of learn in public. Like when you find something interesting, write it up in your own words and share it with people. And at least the people involved in working on the thing will probably read it. And if you're saving some work and if you have some unique perspective, then other people will find it helpful as well. Was there a moment where you were like, "I'm gonna write my own blog post instead of reading other people's"? I've been doing it unsuccessfully for like the two years prior, so there was no like single moment. It was just like. Focusing it on something that people actually cared about. Turns out that 
you, know, you want to write things that people want to read. And, and that's that was a pretty big insight for me. It's not, it didn't seem like that, that big of an insight until you look at the vast quantities of developer blogs out there. And a lot of them are sort of very inward facing. They don't really answer the question of why should you care? And so I, I definitely had my, my mentality changed around like, okay, like it has to be an intersection of things you're very interested in and things that other people are interested in. And you can't just have one. Or Speaking of things that people are interested to read, you have a great book on the coding careers. That's called the Coding Career Handbook. I was one of your uh, first customers. And uh, I really like the parts of it that I read. What was that like? Coming up with the idea of the book and writing it and publishing it? Yeah, the reason, so there's a fun story for the reason the name is so awkward. I still don't like the name, but I just had to go with it because I didn't have anything of anything else. The reason was the original name was Cracking the Coding Career because there was a successful technical interviews book called Cracking the Coding Interview. And the whole point was that it, I wanted it to be apparent in the title that once you're done with the interview, once you landed the job, there's a huge gaping hole of what's next. And this thing, this book is targeted at the what's next. Uh, unfortunately, Gail McDowell, the author of Cracking Coding Career, actually got in touch with me and mentioned lawyers. So <laughs> I had to change the name before launch. So by the time, like I already had my Twitter handle up and all that. And I was just like, all right, I'll just stick with this thing. But it is an awkward name. Yeah, the point I think is that people, I think my most successful writing, like it or not, has been my non-technical writing, which the, the Learning Public Essay has reached hundreds and thousands of people. And I constantly get shout outs every single day about people starting their own journeys. And it's something that I really believe in, even though I hate, I'm not like the Tony Robbins type. I don't want to be like a lifetime life coach or anything. I just think that this worked for me and it will work for a lot more other people. So I was like, okay, you know, I just, I should probably just write down some more advice on, on, on what I think that people need uh, because I think what really crystallized it for me was when you look at career ladders. So I did a study of um, every public career ladder out there. So career ladders are these things where it's like, all right, you're junior, you're expected to have these qualities, you're senior, you're expected to have these qualities, staff, principal, whatever. And, and everyone has some version of these and some companies are actually brave enough to publish them. And so if you just study all of them and you realize something really interesting, which is that when you look at the way that people are promoted and, and graded, about 75% of the grading criteria is non-technical. 75, right? It's like, all right, you, you can code, great. But what about your communication? What about your business impact? <laughs> what about your mentorship and all that? Which is like, surprisingly, not the kind of thing that you, you learn in college or boot camp. And no one tells you to do it, but suddenly it's 75% of your evaluation. Like, well, okay. And, and I think that just reflects the reality that we are less coders and more code-enabled humans. Like we can code, but we're humans first. And so we need to apply all these sort of soft skills. I, I, I hate the word soft skills, but that's the common, commonly accepted term. So I use it to, to uh, we need to teach uh, each other lessons from these things. I am not saying I'm the world's foremost expert at them. I have things to work on myself. And it's a very difficult thing to, to come out and say, like, I have something worthwhile for you, even though I'm imperfect. But I don't base my advice on myself. I also base my advice on hundreds of other people that I've interviewed and collect collected. The book has like 1400 references to people smarter and wiser and more accomplished oh, wow. than I have. And that that's just what research does for you. And hopefully uh, you can decide yourself which of these ideas you agree with and which are not. And that's all I ask, really. I think it's really hard to write a, a soft skills book because your sort of character has to be impeccable. Like the moment you're like, I had a bad interaction with this person, therefore the entire book is wrong. Like, sure, if you want to take that view, that's fine for you. But I view ideas as sort of independent. You, you can sort of pick and choose. And if this book has 40 chapters and three of them make sense for you, then that, that would be a good investment of time for me. 
I, I like the like the field of, of life coaches and career coaches and, <laughs> and therapy and stuff. And I really appreciate the knowledge that you put into the world with that book. So thank you for writing. Well, wow, yeah, thanks for asking about it. it. It's kind of, it's still awkward. You, you can hear me like being very hesitant about like talking about this thing, but people like it. I, I think that everyone wants to hire seniors. That's the truth. There's a huge glut of boot camps producing juniors. There's a lot of self, people self-teaching. And then from, from junior to senior, somehow you magically hope to find something that works. And then once you're senior, everyone wants to hire, everyone wants to hire you. So I guess, you know, if I had to narrow it down, like I, I need to make it easier for, for people to up level. Whether or not like they can use the book as a guide or they can join the Discord that I have and, and interact with me directly and ask me questions and all that. that these are all paths into upskilling more people from junior to senior. And I think people don't do it because it's a very awkward thing to do. But it's an interesting challenge. I, I really like the boot camps that are like nine months. You yeah. You can go really deep. It'd be, it'd be cool if there was like a graduate school version of boot camp. So you go to the boot camp one and then later on you go to the boot camp two. Well, there is uh, a so like, recurse center which is the self-guided one in New York. I haven't heard of it. Yeah, uh, a lot of pretty famous people have come out of the Recurse Center because they, they do, it's, it's essentially like graduate school, like you, you propose your topic and then you sit in a room with a bunch of other people who are very self-motivated as well and you produce something to impress each other. And the kind of people that actually self-select to go there are very intellectually curious themselves. So they work on pretty cool stuff. And it turns out that once they graduate, they'll actually go on to do some pretty interesting things as well. So that, that's a comparison. But like the thing is, it doesn't scale. Like they, they admit like maybe a few dozen people, but there's tens of thousands else who will never do it. Also, there are a couple more ideas in that area that I have were like having it be more of a norm for companies of like even medium size to, to have like a junior teaching mentorship program. Yeah. Yep, more apprenticeships, especially for people from non-traditional backgrounds. I, I see so many companies that have campus recruiting for colleges, but like, actually, what about everyone else? <laughs> so, yeah, and then and then mentorships. It, 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 the the thing is, like, it's perceived to be a cost, and we need to turn that around and, and turn that turn that equation around and say, like, actually, you're getting to upskill talent that is that's cheap that becomes very valuable once you put once you invested in them and i think some companies are getting in into this mindset so stripe is having direct integration with uh, university of waterloo and i think shop sorry stripe is integrating with the university of limerick i think in ireland and shopify is, has a has a degree offering with the university of waterloo and it's just amazing to see all these uh, innovations but they're just sort of piecemeal they, they'll improve a few dozen people a few hundred people at a time but it's a slow process for sure I would think it would make sense for there to be like a lower part of the market where like, like maybe under the, the entry level for expected junior devs, there's like a gap where people can do like traditional apprenticeships where it's more of a stipend or like an internship kind of thing where you're not being paid like a normal dev salary, but you are learning a lot. Yeah. And maybe like that would be low enough that it would be worthwhile. For people. They are doing that. At, they are doing that at Lambda School which is the online bootcamp. Okay. The problem is whenever you talk about paying people perhaps less than an average developer salary, the, there are people online who get very angry about that. And I, it's not my place to say who's right and who's wrong. I defend the right of consenting adults to agree to whatever you know contract they want, even though some, some of them may be exploitative in retrospect. But we have to let people make mistakes and we have to let people experiment with new forms because all we know is the current system doesn't work well in, in some way. We need to try new ideas. We need to make it safe to try new ideas. And and so Lambda School is really trying. And I think what they have right now is 
they'll guarantee you, they'll give you a student for a month and they'll pay the full month of it. So it's totally cost-free to you, except that you have to give them stuff to do. And I think that's a really beautiful experiment. So I don't know. Some people get angry about that. I'm like, you're, you don't know what it's like to be a bootcamp student. I would have killed for that when I was a bootcamp student. I have friends who have hard, haven't found a job after bootcamp. So I hope that system works out. Yeah, nothing is better than sort of just getting into a real work scenario and like stop jumping all the artificial hoops with like inverting your binary tree or whatever and just get into the real work. And after three months, six months, nine months, you're a dev. And, you know, that, yeah, every, everything else is just gatekeeping. So whatever. Speaking of algorithmic coding interviews, I had an interview with TopTal and I didn't know they were going to do data structures and algorithms. So I didn't study and like... I haven't studied it in over 10 years and I got an A in my courses at, at Dartmouth. Oh. So like I knew it at one point, but I totally failed. Did you burn? <laughs> did they give you a grade? Did, it, did they give you a number? Like how bad? <laughs> uh, no, they just like stop asking you more questions. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So TopTel, the reason they have to be so stringent is the marketing, right? They're like, we, they have to have a rejection rate to, to show off because that's part of the marketing appeal. I, I totally get it from their angle, but then also like you don't need them. So whatever. What are your thoughts around different education mediums? Like how did you decide to do a book? versus a video course and do you have any plans for doing books or courses or other things in the future? That's an interesting question. The reason I did a book was because the MVP of a book is a blog post and I already done like three, four years of blogging prior and people already knew me for my blogging. So it's very natural progression. So I didn't really question it. I also know that I take a lot more time to do video than I do writing or Let's just put it. Let's just put it the other way. Like I don't think I'm, a, I'm the world's most natural speaker. I, I have a lot of false starts. I have a lot of ums and ahs, and I'm still working on it, as you can probably tell. But <laughs> same, I, same yeah, and and so when it comes to writing, it's SEO searchable. It's uh, you can edit it anytime and reformat things, and it's not. It's super cheap. You can add hyperlinks, which I love dropping references. Right, like when I have references in a podcast or a talk, I can't drop a hyperlink in my mouth and you can click on it and it just leads you right to the source. I really like that. Um, and it annoys me when podcasts say like, well, we'll put it in the show notes and then they don't. They don't. And it's really super annoying. Anyway, so writing solves all of that. It's writing's perfect medium. It's very scalable. In fact, I have a whole chapter on like why writing is great. Everyone, every developer should write. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, no contest on mediums. That's it. One of the downsides of writing is that the moment you call anything a book, What's the normal price of a book? It's nine to nine to fifty nine dollars or something like that. Like you can go up to maybe ninety nine or, or whatever. Actually, I, I don't know how much the graphical guide costs. <laughs> we start at forty. Forty, got it. Yeah. Wait, there's a range, right? And it's basically constrained by the format rather than the value of the knowledge contained in the book. So if my book happens to increase your the slope of your career by ten thousand dollars a year, the max I can charge is fifty nine, which is what I charge. That's absurd, right? And other formats like video courses, uh, that's automatically like two hundred to three hundred dollars, irrespective of like the actual value that it delivers to you. And so that's a really bizarre way to do things. So that that was one. That's one argument for why you might want to do other formats. So uh, apart from this book, I actually considered doing a React and TypeScript course because my other one of my <laughs> other side gigs is that I run the React and TypeScript cheat sheet, which is the de facto community docs for React and TypeScript. And, and it's, a, it's a much bigger deal now with them back when I started. So I teach a thousand people a day React and TypeScript. And it's been a completely volunteer behavior, volunteer activity. And if I sold 1% of those on, on a video course, I'd probably make a living. It's something that, that I thought about. The, the only reason I don't do it 
is because I don't want to be a teacher. I don't think I'm a, I have a very, I have a temperament to be a good teacher. I don't think I have the patience. I want to do other things with my life apart from teaching. So I think I'll just leave it to someone else or maybe collaborate with, with someone. Let's move to the GraphQL topic. Yeah. What is your take on GraphQL? The greatest thing since sliced bread? Is that what I'm supposed to say? So I had a talk about this Hawaii where I like kind of compared it to like, I hate, I wish that people would stop comparing GraphQL to REST. Like we have to, because that's kind of what we, what what the paradigms are and how, how people mentally place them. But REST doesn't go away. GraphQL is a, a protocol over REST. And so it's like, it's it's not either or, it's like one and the other. That's it. My sort of galaxy brain summary of GraphQL is that instead of creating a, a dozen different endpoints, that are all kind of dumb. You create one smart endpoint and then you have contract that can specify whatever that endpoint does sort of on, on request. And I think that's a really simplified take, but it really, you were there at Apollo Day and I think the Apollo folks have a really good present explanation of this. It really starts to come into its own when you start uh, having multiple devices to support. So you have mobile and desktop and, and web, uh, sorry, and, and sorry, mo mobile native and desktop and uh, mobile web and on, whatever other devices that you may have, these are all have the different data requirements and there's a com combinatorial explosion. They, they have all these lines crossing over from different services into different uh, devices that you could simplify by just having one single sort of smart endpoint and everyone connects to that one smart endpoint that, that speaks the right contract and that smart endpoint has the means to resolve all the data from each individual data source. Then that's essentially GraphQL. Like you could do this in a bunch of different other ways as well. And there have been many, many other attempts. Like GraphQL is, is it's not new there. And I think the creators of GraphQL are pretty upfront about like the inspirations that led to Graph, GraphQL, like uh, OData, which um, I, I never really tried any of these. So I, I don't have much sympathy. All we know is that GraphQL is successful now. It has the network effects now. Um, and therefore it's a much better bet than the other formats, which is an argument by like, it's success, it's popular, therefore it should be more popular, like, that kind of argument. But it's true. There's some amount of validity to betting on things because the ecosystem is better. And so so that's really smart. I have another uh, take, which kind of combines into one of the questions that we prepped for is what, what I dislike about it. So I think that it's very, very easy for front-end developers to wax poetic about GraphQL because it makes their lives a lot easier. And the people that we kind of leave behind or we sort of punt all the tough questions to are the back-end developers for whom it turns out, it's not, it's not always true, but net it turns out that <laughs> it's more work for them. Whatever it is from like figuring out how to do auth, figuring out how to do like rate limiting or like query complexity limit limitations and like inserting all the validation steps or, or, or like joining schemas and federating them. These are all the tough work that was maybe sometimes shift done on, on client side has all been shifted onto the back end. That's really unfortunate for GraphQL adoption. Like the main bottleneck of GraphQL adoption is back end. That's it. That, and I wish we would stop. I wish front-end developers would stop selling GraphQL based on how easy it makes their lives because it's totally unsympathetic to, to back-end people. Back-end people are just like, you guys are not thinking about the security risk. They're not thinking, they're not talking to them in terms that they 
uh, thinking about. And I wish that more evangelism, more graphical evangelism was more sympathetic to the backend perspective. What are your personal favorite parts? Oh, graphical. Uh, this is the common answer, right? Like it's, I feel like graphical is kind of like the, the common ground of all of them. Cause like you can, it's a repo or it's a postman or whatever it is. It's the common tool and it's so good. And it actually got a lot better with graphical explorer. I'm uh, sorry, graphical explorer. And that's the little side tab that they added. And I think their plans were graph uh, for 2.0 and graphical and it's it's just such a introspectable tool that has embedded documentation in it like it's just it's everything you want out of a documentation tool and of api documentation that rest never really got to like the best you got was open api and even that's kind of like a sprawl and it doesn't have embedded like try this it, it does but like it, it's just not as smooth as, as graphical so yeah not really a galaxy brain take here but i i think yeah once you make experimentation and, and modification a, a lot easier then you, you move the pace of the development faster uh, at least on the front end so i, I definitely like that a lot the errors kind of bother me a little bit with errors being 200 okay that's a common sort of gripe among uh, people who don't like GraphQL, but you need to learn to deal with it. You just, yeah. Any advice for people learning GraphQL? Any advice for learning people learning GraphQL? I think the thing that you do in the book where like you explain the validation and set, set things up from scratch, you should do that. You should go through the exercise. Actually, even set up a server using just pure GraphQL JS without all the fanciness that maybe Apollo server does for you. And just fundamentally understand like, or, or so like, I guess the advice would be like to strip down the tooling as much as possible and build your way back up instead of just starting at the tooling and never going down the stack a little bit. So did you know that you can query GraphQL endpoints just with fetch? Do you know how to do that? If so, then great. Then what's the next step after fetch? What does caching actually do for you? So on and so forth. Like these are all the, these are all the steps that you need, you need to sort of work through to, to build up to a complete understanding of GraphQL so that when things go wrong, you know how to fix it. And that's one thing which I, I really you know, encourage because GraphQL is a complex system. It's client side, it's server side, and there's a this complex chain of, of events that go through it. And sometimes the errors can be a bit obtuse if you don't really know what's going on under the hood. Yeah, I had a, a friend who, I was a junior dev working at a company that like had uh, Apollo in place. And like their view of GraphQL was, if I add this like fragment or this query to this component, then I'm gonna get the data. <laughs> And so like, they, they don't have the understanding of like what's happening, how it's all getting collected, what, what the cache is doing, which, which is definitely helpful when things go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. What are your, uh, so you had a chance to read parts of the guide. Thank you so much for being a technical viewer. <laughs> I really valued your feedback. What were your favorite parts of the book? So I noticed that you do something unique, which I don't see a lot in a lot of other books, which is every code sample has like a Git tag. Is that what you do? And, and you can just view the diff or, or go straight to the Git, Git tag from that, that sample. And I actually really like that. Sorry. So th this is really tiny detail, but then like, I appreciate that because I, I read a bunch of other books as well. Like I got another book here and on top of this monitor that I'm looking at you on, I have a bunch of other uh, tech books as well. I really enjoy reading technical books as a way to level up. And so like when you can actually follow through on the code and download it and run it yourself, that's a really nice detail. Overall, like I, I think it's, I think it's a, you know, very comprehensive, like 500 something pages, which is huge guide. And it's the kind of detail that you would take months to really pick up on. And you get it within uh, within a few days of, of just reading this book. And so I just really appreciated like all the research and all the piecing together of, of things. Obviously, you had to make some tech choices, like a picking on a picking Apollo. But I don't think these are controversial at all. <laughs> these are just like the industry standard uh, things that, that you would at least expect people to be familiar with, even if they go with the alternative. And then going into like each individual client and framework, I don't use 
you know, React Native. Sorry, I don't use Vue or React Native, or I think you have some other native iOS even <laughs> that you went into there. I don't use any of those platforms. I'm just a web person. But I know that when the time comes, I can just pick it up and, and start there. So that's a really good perspective. As well as like the broader ecosystem, right? Like Apollo Federation, which is like a fa fairly new thing. And, and then talking a little bit about Hasura as well, which um, I think is one of the most significant GraphQL companies out there. So so yeah, it really like combines, condenses a lot of research that's done by you and John Rezig. And that's pretty worth, that's pretty much worth the sticker price. Thank you. So the tags is particularly difficult because I have a tag for each section of yeah. each coding chapter. And those are chapters six through 11. And then for each version of the book has a different tag version. <laughs> so it's like the React chapter is maybe yeah, yeah. 40, 40 tags with each with a version number. And then each time I change the code for the next version of the book, I can make another 40 tags. It's a big process. Yeah. I like scripts to, to run. <laughs> I always think about is React the best pair to GraphQL? Like, does it, is it an accident of history that it just happened to also come out of Facebook? That's which is why we use it together. I always wonder that because React is very weird with its effects and, and all that. It's kind of clunky to, to use. So you you basically have to use a third party library like Urkel or Apollo client to, to wire it up. Right. I don't, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Like, I was just like, ugh. Anyway. We, we can talk the frame, talk about frameworks another day, but yeah, I appreciate it that all, all the guys are in there and you took pains to to cover other you know devices. Like like I said, like one of the main benefits of adopting GraphQL is that you can uh, support multiple devices, uh, multiple frameworks and, and paradigms pretty easily. Any visions for the future of GraphQL? Oh, one is probably like having the backend story be more developed. I think both, both, both pitching them and then also the software supporting them. Yeah, so you have a pretty good coverage of this in the book, uh, where you talk about defer and like the other two directives, which I never remember. Stream, yes, yeah, stream. So like all these spec level things are very important uh, because once it's in the spec, then multiple different parties can implement them, and we, because right now everyone's kind of haphazardly kind of hacking their way around it if they need it. And once it's standardized, we can really build some rails around it to make it a lot more reasonable. And things like defer, like they need to be in there just because once your once your graph gets big, like you you need to query things at, at different paces and have them all in one one single query. Yeah, so so uh, more standardization of stuff. Like I even I don't know I don't know how you feel about this. Actually I, I should ask your opinion. But I think that graph I wish that GraphQL had a date time standard type. Yeah, definitely. I think okay. I think it's in the it's uh, some stage in the spec. Okay, because it's super annoying. <laughs> it doesn't happen. Yeah, so I think Lee Byron has had arguments for why they kept it out. And definitely simpler is better for the initial success of GraphQL. GraphQL would not be where it is today if it had done all the things. It had to really, really scope down and just solve a specific problem for Facebook and, and the early adopters. Then it got big and then people want more out of it. This is the natural way of things. This is how it always goes. That's it. It's super annoying to, to work with daytime in, uh, in GraphQL and everyone has their own really weird spec and we should probably standardize on that. I think Relay seems to, Relay seemed kind of dead for a while and then it's, it's had a little bit of resurgence and people really like the the cursor format, which uh, which I think uh, you, you briefly touched on as well. There's There seems to be some amount of need for a standardization of like the way we do pagination, the way we do a bunch of things, like even authorization uh, as well. I, I don't think it's really, it's too left to implement. That it's too head wavy, ah. and, and so yeah, which is which kind of goes back to solving backend developers' pain points, like having best practices that are sort of well defended and in, in, in production at well known companies. That really gives a lot of assurance to the rest of us who are just trying to figure this out and trying to evaluate. Like, oh, hey, I have this thing that has worked for fifteen years, 
that's that happens to be rest that i can ship faster with that or i can deal with this cutting edge thing which like i might make a critical mistake on me. sorry might cut me it might cut me exactly <laughs> so nine times out of ten the the business owner is going to say no because it's just like are, are you a dev just trying to play the new toy or are you trying to ship do you, do you know how to ship things which have always worked and nothing's broken about it so you really need to <laughs> pave the path which is something that obviously i do for a living but graphql has a lot of smart people working on that yeah did i answer the question about the future <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, for for a long while federation used to be a, a a big sticking point and then they actually came out with it so i think it's less of a talking point now and hopefully i i haven't used it in any sort of work setting so i don't know how actually people feel about it all i know is that it was that there were multiple competing solutions and now there's an official one so i guess the, the last thing on graphql was AppSync. i'm curious but what kind of companies you see you saw using it i guess a, a quick overview for, for people Okay, AppSync is, so GraphQL tends to end up as a gateway, meaning that it starts to wrap around other REST APIs, starts to wrap around your other data services, and then you start, to, that's a natural, in my view, state of where it should lie in your stack, and then your front end sort of starts to query against the GraphQL gateway rather than your REST or API gateway. In Amazon's terminology, it is literally called API gateway, the most unimaginative name possible. So the GraphQL version of that is, is called AppSync, not GraphQL gateway for whatever reason. And it really does essentially the same thing. You can define resolvers and resolve against data sources, whether REST or uh, third party, or, or even like an included DynamoDB database, which uh, there's a specialized schema for that, where you can, which, which is really intuitive to set up. And I think, so people using that, Amazon Music, 30 million uh, monthly active users is based on AppSync. There, there are some clients, I big sort of consumer brand clients. And there, there are a bunch of uh, smaller, smaller but well-known names, like Orange Theory is another one which we, we talk about a lot, which is a gym that <laughs> converted to like an online fitness training company during COVID that has like, that does like 2 million monthly su subscribers a, a month or something like that. And uh -huh. And yeah, it's used in production by the kind of companies that use AWS and they may not necessarily be well-known names to developers, but they are successful businesses in and of their own right. We also have a bunch of nonprofits, which I really enjoy because it helped them get to market quicker. I, I feel like I, I still, I'm still performing my, my role as AWS spokesperson here, but like it really, I really enjoyed this because like during COVID, a lot of people had to go online and uh, a lot of nonprofits actually built out their apps using AppSync uh, and they got to market in like three weeks and, and started serving people. Like some of them were like homeless shelters. Some of them were like sort of critical uh, medical care facilities and, and when you see the pace of development solved by 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 this by this service, like you you can get naturally very excited by them. And sorry, so let me get to the point. The point is that you want a service, a GraphQL service, and either someone at your company is going to build it, and it's going to be weird and funky and kind of custom to your company, or it's sort of spec'd out and and developed and, and scaled by someone like AWS or Hasura or Apollo, whoever else does the GraphQL as a gateway service. Because I, it, because I just said like the, the backend stuff is the hard part. So why not let someone else do that for you? It's, that's, the, that's the main pitch. So yeah, sorry. I feel really weirdly passionate about this just because like it's a really fascinating investment. AWS is the only big cloud to invest in GraphQL. Azure and Google are nowhere on it on this and uh, Facebook is in the cloud. So, so I feel like AWS maybe doesn't get enough credit for like the amount that is really investing in making GraphQL a thing and making GraphQL easier for, for people to, to put it into production. I would say it's not the easiest thing in the world because it still has to encounter a lot of AWS hurdles, like how do you deal with IAM policies and billing and all that, which has its own sort of nightmares in, in AWS. Nothing's perfect, but it's a trusted brand and it serves people who are familiar with AWS, they, it serves them well enough.
Oh, one example I, I think I really like was uh, Yan Tui uh, on on Twitter. I, I don't know if you if, if you come across him. He's actually done a, a bunch of tests and actually helped to help a bunch of clients build with AppSync. And one of the interesting things is that GraphQL natively has a subscription sort of paradigm subscription method method which you can implement with like long polling or whatever. But the the hard thing with serverless has been using has been you know developing serverless with with web sockets like having the scalability of a serverless with the persistent connections of web sockets appsync has this built in and so it's much easier to to develop sort of live apps with with the, with the live reaction functionality that that web sockets give you with appsync than without and and to go pure serverless with api gateway i'm sorry i'm, th- I'm throwing a lot of jargon at you but if you're in the aws ecosystem you know what that means no i've i've used it on one or two what are they called consulting gigs and I remember not understanding the, the UI very well. Yeah. Like not feeling intuitively, but then being able to do most with like CloudFormation via the Amplify CLI. So I like that. Yeah, that's a that's the common starting point, which is like if you just have a pretty common use case, I would definitely recommend using the CLI. Then the more custom you get, I would recommend checking out a cloud a CDK, the cloud development kit, where you can sort of programmatically create CloudFormation resources to attach onto your API gateway. And that's the migration path. You start with the CLI, start out building something simple, a proof of concept, get familiar with the GraphQL schema definition language that maps onto your resources. Like that's ultimately what you want, right? You want your the GraphQL SDL SDL that you write. To, to do as much work for you. So that means provisioning infrastructure in the back end and doing code gen in the front end, right? That's what, that's the ultimate dream of like, do one thing, one source of truth, and it flows both ways, right? And that's what AppSync is building towards. I definitely say it's not perfect. Like, like you, exactly, AWS will never win any UI awards. But the, the bar is very low for, for AWS. Like all he has to do is to be better than existing services that AWS has. It's not trying to win world's best API for compared to all the other startups out there. It just has to serve existing AWS customers very well. So, so uh, yeah, that's kind of my perspective on that. Like, and, and like the code gen goes all the way down to the front end. So AWS has, has this, sorry, Amplify has this idea of the data stores, which is on-device cache of your remote data, which is powered by your GraphQL yeah. schema. I remember when Twitter figured out that the Amplify uh, client was based on Apollo client, but also had a lots of added things like yeah. offline data. Yeah, and, and this kind of thing is only possible with strong typing, right? Like, which is essentially what GraphQL provides for you, strong typing of your backend schema. And so once you have that, you can produce a, a front-end replica of that, and, it, and then it works offline, which is the kind of thing that you, it's basically only possible by vertical integration. And if, it, if you don't, if you piece things together yourself, then you're on the hook for building all that, which is pretty rough. So like, I just think it's amazing the, the amount of investment that's going into this. I, I feel like it's really rough to, to make easy and get right because the, the surface area is massive. <laughs> but but I think that the vision is correct. I think that the vision of like, let's make this GraphQL schema do everything, <laughs> drive, the, make it the source of truth and drive the whole app. And when you do migrations, it's very easy to, to see what, to regenerate the clients, regenerate the backend infrastructure. That's the way you want to do things. Because if everything's disconnected, then you're essentially doing a lot of things twice. Like, like you change the schema, all right, then you write the resolver, then all right, provision the infrastructure at the back end. These could all be done in one step if you had tight integration. Any final message you'd like to give to the readers in the GraphQL guide? Enjoy the book at, and ask the authors for coverage of Relay because I feel like there's a lot, and no fault to you, like I think GraphQL ecosystem is big enough and you already did a fantastic job of covering all of these things. I just feel like Apollo is one perspective on what GraphQL could be. And there are very, very smart people that I really, really respect that love Relay. And I don't know anything about it, and I wish I could read more about it. All right, I, I plan on adding at least a little bit about Relay uh, pursuant to your feedback. 
So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, likewise.